welcome to Nanny Ogg's Book Club, a Discworld podcast. Join us as we read through all 41 of the fantastical and outrageous Discworld novels. I'm Tessa. And I'm Nigel. This is episode one, Mort. All right, so this is our very first episode and very first Discworld novel. I am very excited to talk about Mort. As I mentioned in the previous episode, we decided to start with Mort mainly because it is more accessible as a entry point into the Discworld series. Depending on whether you're a stickler for reading in publication order or not, this is either your first book reading the Discworld series or your fourth book reading the Discworld series. So, you know, if you if you feel like you need to read in publication order, you might want to skip around the episodes a little bit. But this is the first one that we are doing, and let's just dive right into it. So just a little bit of background information on Mort. Mort was published in 1987. As I said, it is the fourth Discworld novel coming after Color of Magic, Light Fantastic, Sorcery, and Equal Rights. However, it is the first one to focus on the character of Death, the Grim Reaper, the anthropomorphic personification of death. Before, in previous, in previous novels, he had just been kind of a side character, a joke. Um, you know, the Grim Reaper would show up and he talks in all capital letters and, you know, makes these really fun, dry, humorous jokes. I'm sure we'll talk about that when we circle back around to those previous novels. The reason I picked this one to read first for this podcast is because Pratchett himself said that this was the first Discworld novel that he was happy with because it was the first one where the plot didn't exist to further the jokes. The plot itself is important. It's also kind of a cult classic amongst people who love the Discworld. In fact, I don't know if you knew this, Nigel, for a while, the creators and directors of The Princess and the Frog, the Disney adaptation, were going to make a Mort animated series. That's actually what they wanted to do. Yeah, so Mort was almost a Disney property. Wait, what? Which is wild to me. <laughs> It is also coming off of Equal Rights, which wasn't as successful of a novel, but this is considered one of the early classics of the Discworld. There has, however, been a stage production and a comic book adaptation. I think it's called like Mort the Big Comic or something like that. So in this book, Mort is an unwieldy and overly enthusiastic teenager who is unsuited to his family's farming business. His family attempts to get him an apprenticeship, but the only person who shows up to the apprenticeship fair is a living skeleton with a cowl and a scythe. Death, of course. Death takes Mort to his realm where he meets Death's adopted daughter, Isabel, and his crusty butler, Albert. After many weeks of mucking out Death's horse's stall and watching Death assist those who have died towards their own personal afterlife, Death decides to take a night off, and Mort is finally given the chance to step in and do the job himself, only things don't go quite as planned, and reality itself might now be unraveling. That's my best. I feel like that was pretty good, right? Did I miss anything in my setup there? No. I feel like that's a fairly, like, you know, good light intro into what Mort is. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure we're going to talk about spoilers for sure, but that's like a pretty good, like, basic intro into what this book what, what the premise of the book is. So this is the first Discworld novel that you have read since you read the Tiffany Aching ones when you were 15. 
how did you, what was your first reaction? What's your first sort of take on this novel? My first, like, my first impression was, like, this is good. <laughs> well, good. I'm a sucker for first lines in in novels, and, like, the way the, the way Pratchett, like, sets Mort up with the first line, this is the bright candlelit room where the lifetimers are stored, shelf upon shelf of them, squat hourglasses, one for every living person pouring their fine sand from their future into the past. That's good. But it also, you know, like, you know, it sets up really what, what, what death is meant to do in, in the disc world and stuff. So it's not just like, it's, you know, it's not just ornamental for ornamental's sake. Well, and I love how that first line just like jumps into the action. Like it's not, uh, we will read Terry Pratchett books later where he kind of goes the more traditional fantasy route where he's like, this is the great Atuan and, you know, sailing through space and, you know, long ago and that kind of thing. But this is very like quick and to the point of like, here we are in the middle of the lifetimer room. You know, this is death. This is what's happening, which I appreciate. Hmm. Yeah. So it, like it really sets up, it really sets up this vibe. And as an English student, I am legally allowed to describe something as being a vibe. <laughs> that's, uh, that's a legal right you have. But it, it it is a vibe. Yeah. Yeah, it is a vibe. Like I can't I can't get employed with my degree, so I'm just gonna vibe. I mean, I, if I had to describe the Discworld, that might be one word that I would use is that it has a real vibe. I I don't know if I could necessarily describe to you what that vibe is all the time, but it is a real vibe. Let's just let's just start. With the basics, let's start by talking about Death, who is, I mean, this book is called Mort, and we can laugh a little bit about the wordplay there, right? Mort is, means death, right? It, it is, it's sort of like the more Latin, French, like, word for death. And so there's sort of a play on words there. But Death is really like the central figure of this work, even though Mort is the main character, technically. What how, how what did you think about this version of the Grim Reaper? I'm I'm struggling for words, but not because I don't like it. I do, but it's just very hard to like quantify, especially because like you know I have very little experience touching base, as it were, with this death. You know what I mean? Because it's like on the one hand he's sort of the, like the force which is death, because Mort kind of adopts that later on in the book. Sometimes it can be. You're like very typical, like booming voice from the gods, you know, where, you know, he's like, like all of the plagues on you if you don't get out of the shop <laughs> that moment. But then at the same time, he's like, this is my horse, Binky. <laughs> so he's a good character. He's a good character. And I want to know yeah, more. Yeah, I, I guess this is like the first. Real time, again, like he shows up in some of the earlier books, but this is the first time that we get this real look at this character that he gets to really do anything more than just like show up and, you know, usher someone into the afterlife. I really just rereading more really was struck by how much this character fills the role of like almost like a Spock or a Data like, they're trying to understand humanity, but they don't quite get it right. Especially Data, I guess, if you're a Next Generation fan. Like, this idea of, like, he's not human, but he's fascinated by humans. And he wants to understand them because he's so, like, adjacent to them all the time. And, 
he sort of goes on this journey in the novel where he he really wants Mort as an apprentice so he can take some nights off, which, I mean, I feel like Death should have a union if he can't take a night off every once in a while. And he goes on this journey where he really wants to understand humanity, but again, he just can't quite get there. He can like do the motions, but he doesn't understand it, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, it feels odd to come in with this quote at the very start, but it's one that like struck me because like I said, I was reading it while I was on my lunch break at work. So I'm in like, you know, a quiet little middle office on my own and I've got my lunch box and I'm eating. There is no restraint on spoilers. Yeah. So we can just go in wherever yeah, we, we talk want about from the book. we want. So like, so I'm just going to jump into like page 229 of, of the book where it's like death is working in a kitchen and it's like time is not important. So this is an interaction between him and the cook Harga. Uh, you say? Right. Harga decided not to argue. Well, you're doing a damn fine job in there, boy, he said. What is it called when you feel warm and content and wish things would stay that way? I guess you'd call it happiness, said Harga. Inside the tiny cramped kitchen, stratted with the grease of decades, death spun and whirled, chopping, slicing and frying, his skillet flashed through the fetid steam. He'd opened the door to the cold night air and a dozen neighborhood cats had strolled in, attracted by the bowls of milk and meat, some of Harga's best, if he'd known, that had been strategically placed around the floor. Occasionally, Death would pause in his work and scratch one of them behind the ears. And this is where it changes from the all capitals of Death to just regular writing. Happiness, he said, and puzzled at the sound of his own voice. Yeah, I love I love that scene. I think that that's like very, like in this book, it's just very interesting. And we could talk about the mechanics of the capitals versus not capitals. By the way, you do a great death impression. I just want to compliment you on your reading skills here. I'm I'm sort of repurposing my um archivist voice from the Magnus archives <laughs> where it's like I have I kind of have two deep voices which is um Jonathan Sims from the Magnus archives who's very like uh, like that that's the register like hello. And then there's a uh, Nick Ignick from Hello from the Hollow Woods who speaks like I am in a shed like that so <laughs> <laughs> but yeah like the all capital thing that death does is i mean it's a thing that continues throughout the entire you know that's part of his character as he speaks in all caps and in fact in some books that's the only way you can really identify him is that it'll just be a figure that's unidentified but since he's speaking in all caps you know that he's that he's death but yeah i i always imagine that's a fun little way of doing easter eggs and books oh yeah i mean death is in every single Discworld book like he at least makes an appearance at least once in every Discworld book which i just think is so interesting and i think it says something also about the character as well but yeah i the the scene where he's like trying to understand human emotions and yeah where he's like what is this feeling where it's like warm inside i i think that that's fascinating and his thing with cats makes me laugh every single time like he is so obsessed with cats and cats are it's cats and wizards are the only people cats wizards and witches are the only people who can see him for what he is which i just find fascinating yeah i think that's hilarious where it's like like at the job fair uh at the start where he, like mort's dad is talking to him and he's like he 
he can't grasp the name of of death because he's you know he's perceiving him as something else and he's like mr mr and then we'll just continue on his sentence like he's just briefly buffered uh, you know and then he's like oh you know you go far in your job what do you you know like what do you work as and he's just hearing whatever he needs to hear to get more to be his apprentice it kind of reminds me of uh doctor who the the paper thing that he has i i can't remember what it's called it's like sentient paper oh the psychic, psychic paper. paper thank you yeah where he's just like it, and it's just whatever they need to see like whatever credentials that they need to see to let the doctor do whatever he needs to do it's just there it's just like that but i think that that's really important to understanding pratchett's work is that this idea that humans will sort of filter out whatever it is that doesn't seem that doesn't fit into their preconceptions of the world and in this case it's literal right it's not just like oh well we'll just ignore the things that don't make sense to us it's like you are being confronted by the grim reaper like the symbol of the end of life but because he can't possibly be real you actually cannot perceive him and so he like there's all these like hilarious jokes where he's just making his way like through crowds and people don't get out of his way they're just not in his way because he can't possibly exist which i think is i think that's a, such a really interesting concept yeah like i mean we we've had a lot of those i like i i don't want to give lovecraft any more credit than is necessary but that that's kind of the name for that brand of like supernatural stuff like lovecraftian horrors you know what i mean where it's like our mind can't wrap around what they physically are like in, in the case of lovecraft or even um its true form in stephen king's it where it's like we can't comprehend it so our brain needs to dumb it down to like you know something which looks like a spider in the case of it where it's like but with death it's like we just can't there's no analog and uh, you know that we can come up with for what death is right and i think it's also fascinating the implication that part like the most important part of the witches and wizards training as it were is to see the things that are actually there it's not just like learning magic or you know wearing a pointy hat although there's a lot of jokes about that but it's like you, the most important part of your training is to learn how to not filter things out through your own preconceptions, to see what is actually in front of you, which is why a lot of wizards and witches can see death and cats, apparently. Cats just automatically do that. They don't even need training. <laughs> I think it's because cats give very little, like very little shits about the world around them. Yeah, no fucks given. So anything, anything preternatural is treated with the same casual disinterest as a regular human for a cat. That that's how I'm justifying it in my head. Yeah, you know yeah, what I mean. No, that totally makes sense. There's a there's a scene in Coraline uh, by Neil Gaiman where she Coraline is in like the the other world, and the cat who there's this cat that was like hanging around her house, and the cat is in the other world as well. And it starts talking to her, and she's like, wait, so how do you travel between worlds? How can you talk here? And the cat just gives, like, looks at her and goes, because I'm a cat. Like, that's, like, the only explanation that's given. And I feel like 
that that's so true though like of all the animals that would travel between dimensions and 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 just give no explanation as to why it would be a cat it's just part of their nature yeah it's like like neil gaiman handshake emoji terry pratchett loving cats yeah, yeah so many cat jokes so many cat characters too but yeah, it's just every time death shows up in the real world, there's always a cat around or a cat rubbing up against him. There's a really sad scene at the beginning where, uh, you know, cat the death has to come and, and, you know, take a couple of kittens who have been drowned, you know, and he's like really angry about it. Like he's more angry about the cats being like killed than he is about like ushering people into the afterlife, which I think is really... Uh, that's just such a it, it tells you so much about death as a character yeah like it, it'd be easy to fall into like the trap of of moralizing with a book as death with death as the protagonist or you know main focal point because really mort is the protagonist even though no one why is that no one no one calls mort by his name <laughs> so it's boy yeah, it's always boy or you or what like lad. He spends the whole, yeah, he always sp- he spends the whole book correcting people. And like he nearly becomes like a pokemon where like <laughs> most of his sentences just start off with like more where, like you know, you imagine him saying it in a squirtle voice. Um I, why is that? You know, I think I just had a revelation and we could we should we should actually talk about more as a character as well so one of the big through lines of this novel is that more as he becomes the apprentice of death and as he starts fulfilling the duties of death he starts to become death in a lot of ways or a death like he starts to like his eyes start to glow blue he starts to speak in all capitals as well in certain circumstances and the idea is, is that if you fulfill the role of death, if you do death's duties, you start to take on that like significance and that magic and that you know role of belief. And it's presented in the book as a tragedy, or not really a tragedy, but as a dangerous threat because Mort remembers what it's like to be human. So even though death is trying to become human or trying to understand humans, the idea is that he's much more dispassionate and much more removed from humanity which makes him a better death as opposed to mort who is starting to take on this role who could be cruel right who could you know who could try to make moralistic judgments which would upset like space-time continuum and so on so that's sort of this running theme and i almost wonder because mort is the name mort is a play on death it is you know it means death i wonder if that's part of why they can't remember his name because there's this idea of, like, we already have a death, and you're not death. You're the boy, or you're the lad. And then as, like, the book goes on, he, like, keeps insisting he is more as he becomes death. Does that make any sense? Did anything out of that ramble mean anything <laughs> to you? That does, especially because, like, when you consider the princess. Kelly, yeah. Like, you know, she's meant, yeah, she's meant to be dead. She's meant, and the universe believes she's dead, but she's not because Mort fumbled with the sword and and killed the assassin. Right. Yeah. Right. So you have you have these kind of like characters on parallel paths who the universe refuses to accept, and 
you know, because they're like, oh, we're going to have a coronation, but no one in the nation like knows why they're having it. It reminds me of um, in Welcome to Night Vale, there's this character called the man in the tan jacket who no one can remember his face or anything about him. Like, you know, he'll talk to you and stuff, um, but you'll, you, you'll forget it straight away, which, you know, it's kind of like a classic trope, but they, they, they go into it in the first novel. The first novel is kind of like solving the mystery of the man in the tan jacket. And there's a town called uh, King City in it where it's like, we're having an election for mayor but we've forgotten that we actually already have a mayor. So we go to the polling booths and we go to cast our ballots and we find out we have a mayor. And why didn't we know this before? Yeah. Like it's interesting the way that the unit, like reality and time are really played with in this novel as well. It, to me, it reminded me of the Stephen King novel, uh, 11, like the, ways in which like it's very difficult to change time and to change reality because time wants to be a certain way like it wants certain things to happen or or you know there's there's like a shape that time needs to like adhere to and to change that shape is incredibly difficult because time will actually sort of fight back against you and that's kind of what's happening in this novel with Kelly yeah well like i mean yeah, and then as you get to the end, right, like death hands Mort the pearl at his wedding. The the alternate reality. Where it's like, you know Yeah, like the like the pressure of this timeline got so big that it crystallized these possibilities into a pearl and this will eventually be like, you know, the birth of a new world or however however it's put. Yeah. I don't, don't, fuck, yeah, with the don't fuck with the timeline. That's I think that's important. If the flash has oh, taught gosh. me anything. It's don't fuck with the timeline. There's like a, there's an episode of the of I think it might actually be Arrow where something has changed and Oliver's first reaction is like what did you do Barry and Barry's like it's not me it wasn't my fault but yeah I don't fuck with the timeline it's really important I I also love how Kelly who's meant to be dead like has she hires Cutwell the wizard to be her royal recognizer <laughs> which is like. A great yeah. joke. Like, his whole job is to tell people that she exists. Like, she's queen of this country. Sometimes, yeah, sometimes I, sometimes I feel like I need a person like the royal Just to tell people that you exist. You know? Yeah, sometimes there's a, or sometimes maybe they'll, they'll tell me that yeah. I exist. Yeah, yeah, just some you know reassurance. What I mean? Like, you exist, you're real, you're not dead. Yeah. You are here. That's yeah. Important. It's important. That like I mean I have I have Twitter for that but like Twitter's not exactly the best place even though it is sort of the modern equivalent to um a town square where you would go and get an apprenticeship yeah. with death. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure death has a Twitter, right? I mean he probably doesn't know how to use it, but he has one. Probably. Like Yeah, well, like I mean right. Satan has a Twitter. Yeah, like I mean I'm trying to I'm, I'm scrolling back through my tweets just to find one where it's like it does have that energy yeah hello i am drinking a seven up and i am with my friend oh no hold on yeah hello i am drinking a seven up and i am with my friends and we are playing cards and my friends are all so beautiful and the earth may keep turning but we are here in this moment poetry we exist. pure poetry in a tweet but yeah no 
I think I sent that at like yeah, five o'clock in the morning. That, that really has <laughs> the energy of a five o'clock in the morning tweet for sure. But yeah, you just need a quick cut well to respond and be like, oh, yeah. Yes, you exist. Like it, just like a response to your tweet. Yeah. Or or maybe he retweets. Someone should make a uh, someone should make a at, <laughs> someone should make a like a bot like at Royal <laughs> Recognizer. <laughs> you know those yeah. ones. It's like every Saturday they'll just retweet the um the clip from Toy Story Two where it's like where Al is like I have to drive to work all the way to work <laughs> on a Saturday. Yeah, my like favorite that. is the one that every Friday tweets the t- tweets Daniel Craig introducing the weekend on SNL where he's like, "Ladies and gentlemen, yes. the weekend." It's my favorite. Yeah, the weekend. <laughs> yeah, the royal recognizer just goes around and and like posts affirmations on people's on people's tweets i love it let's talk about mort as a character because obviously even though like this is part of the death series mort is the main character of this book the book's obviously named after him what did you think of mort as a character i feel like mort Mm, i'm not sure and this could be just like the fact that i i read it so quickly and maybe like glossed over a lot of nuance. Maybe because like like Terry Pratchett packs a lot into the book, a lot into all of his books as well. But I feel like Mort isn't necessarily an unfinished character, or if he is, I feel like it's by choice that like as the narrative goes on, it fills in with the you know the energy that is death. So like at the start, you kind of don't really know anything you're just like you know he doesn't want to work on his family's farm okay that's it and he just goes and like mucks out some stables for a while he, he he's a bit of a boring character to start he's off with very, this is where i think it, he fits into the classic fantasy narrative because this character at least at the beginning reminds me a lot of just like 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 rand at the beginning of wheel of time or you know just these characters these usually male characters who are you know in a rural area and they're just doing their thing but they're kind of boring and they're you know they're just they're he's enthusiastic but nobody really wants him because he's too enthusiastic he's kind of gangly right he's a redhead he's tall you know that kind of thing you know it's it's yeah or like um I can't remember his name. The the male protagonist of the like Belgaria yeah. series by David Eddings. It's like the closest thing I've seen to to more. I guess in, in traditional fantasy. To go outside of traditional fantasy, Luke Skywalker at the beginning of A New Hope. Like it's very like. I'll take your word. That's I true. You seen haven't seen Star Wars. I keep forgetting. That's a different podcast. But I. Oh no! I will never watch Star Wars at this stage. Like it's it's too funny. It's too funny. Like the only one I've seen, the only one I've seen. <laughs> your your commitment to this, your commitment, your commitment to this bit is admirable. Like you're just like I will never watch Star Wars just to be funny. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I love that. So yeah, like I just I feel like Mort is just like every teenager male protagonist of a fantasy series at the beginning of the series like like he is just like this stock character which seems very purposeful right like this idea that he's like almost an empty vessel that can be filled with death yeah yeah 
I'm like, it, you know, because this is the this is the fourth Discworld book, so we're not too far removed from the color of magic, which is deliberately parodying sword and sorcery type books. So it would make sense if if Mort is deliberately created at the start to be like a parody of these types of protagonists. Yeah, I I just he is kind of he's not my favorite character in this surprisingly even though m- much of it is told from his perspective. I do like the jokes later when he starts being able to walk through walls cuz that's a big death thing, right? Is that he can like walk through walls because he's more real than the rest of the world around him. And so Mort as he's taking on more of these responsibilities and starts being able to do more of these powers, I love the bits where he's just like walking through things and everybody is like freaking out that he's able to do this, but he doesn't even realize that he's doing it, which I think is very funny and it's played very well. Yeah. And, and then when the tables are turned where it's like, is this, this is a real wall, right? Yeah, <laughs> this is a real one. Yeah. Or cut well, like I, I suggest you find a very thin wall or maybe a door. Yeah, there's there's some very yeah. funny funny moments in there too. Uh, the other uh, uh, when you brought up the thing where they never say his name too. This time around, when I was reading it, especially with the character of Isabel, who is Death's daughter, or her his adopted daughter, she the way that she calls him boy a lot, and just kind of her general attitude of. Like, you're an outsider or an interloper or, like, he, she obviously sees... The way she treats him is very classist in some ways. It's very, like... Can I guess where this is going? Yes, please. Is it a Princess Bride type thing you're going for? No, although there is a little bit of that in there. I hadn't thought about it, but there is. Yeah, fun boy. Yeah, I was actually thinking Great Expectations. Where Estella is constantly calling Pip boy. Oh, yeah, and she's Ooh, like going for the deep cut with the dick with the Dickens. Yeah, yeah, that's actually what this really reminded me of was the the boy you know type of Estella, especially because like they're in like this very gothic house because Death's realm exists outside of space and time, but he made like this house. It's all like blacks mm. and purples, and you know she's alone, and I think that. You know, she's perpetually 16. She's been 16 for 37 years, right? And that's like a big a big part of her character. But she she definitely treats him, especially for the first half of the novel, very much like that disdainful, like, I belong here and you don't type of yeah. type of attitude. I I will counter that with though, and it's not like pulling you up on your Dickens knowledge. It's like to do with, you know, like it's to do with what the book is about, where it's like Estelle in Great Expectations is bred to be cruel by Miss Haversham. She's bred to be a weapon, you know, to slight men because Miss Haversham was jilted at the wedding altar. Whereas like death, I, I don't think there's a cruel bone in death's body. You know what I mean? No, not at where all. Where it's like, yeah, like he'd never raise someone to be that way. And so it's just kind of like her own thing. So I feel like she differs with Estella on that. Because, like, I mean, you know, they say later on, no one gets pardoned for living. Like, you know, you got to live your life however it is, good or bad. Yeah. You You know, no one is going to excuse the things that you do, only you. Right. And a big thing in the book, too, is the whole idea of 
there isn't uh, death, you know, says this several times, there is no justice. There's just me. Right. Like this idea of like, he doesn't get to judge who did wrong, who did right, who lived their life good, who lived their life bad. It's just death. Right. At the end, everybody just dies. And that's just that's his job. And so I there is sort of that relationship where he's not cruel, but he's not kind, um, but he's not cruel either. He just is. And I, the the only thing that I really wish that we got more of, because we don't get this in any of the other books, is we don't really know what kind of father death was to Isabel. Like, there is sort of like these jokes in there about how he doesn't really know how to talk to her or he makes these assumptions about her that aren't necessarily true. But we don't actually get to see very much of the parent-child relationship between them. Yeah, well, like, I mean, it seemed at the start that, like, you know, Albert was going to be kind of like the governor-type figure. You know, like the in-home kind of nanny in that way. And then it's like, you know, because Albert makes the food because Death doesn't eat. But, he, you know, he'll make up, like, sausages and eggs, fry them up for whoever wants them. And that's at least the character that he's created, that he's initially presented as. But at the same time, he doesn't feel like he's a father figure to Isabel. Right. She kind of gives off this incredible loneliness for a lot of the novel, which I found, I didn't, I don't think I noticed that the first time I read it, because I think I was more focused on Mort and death. But she is like an incredibly lonely character. Yeah, I had a weird, I had a weird thought with the, you know, she's been 16 for 37 years, where it's like, <laughs> she'd really love a Dr- Olivia Rodrigo. Yeah, um, she would. <laughs> where it's like, you know, because cause in Brutal, she's like, I'm so sick of 17, where's my fucking teenage dream? Where it's like, you know, Isabel would love to be anything other than 16. Yeah, she's sort if of. If someone stuck. tells me one more time, enjoy your youth, I'm gonna cry. <laughs> yeah, she's kind of stuck there. You know, at 16, she's like in this adolescent stage, and all she can do is read about other people's lives. And so she has this really like fucked up view of what love is, because all she has is like these stories about great lovers that are clearly like modeled off of things like Romeo and Juliet and, you know, Cleopatra and Mark Antony and that kind of thing. So I I find that very sad, actually. Like, could you imagine, like, those are the only types of things that you can read? Yeah. And that's what you think think life is supposed to be? Yeah. That's a fun... Well, like, in that, if that's what you think life is supposed to be, that sort of brings in a lot of, I don't know, like, Rapunzel-type narratives, where you've got a person who's raised away from the rest of the world with kind of going back to Estella in Great Expectations, where it's like, this person, their entire worldview is shaped by one person and what their worldview is. Where it's like, you know, Rapunzel is taught to fear outsiders by Mother Gothel. That kind of thing. But, it, you know, she, she's just reading it from books and from the inner thoughts of people's lives. Right. The book room, the biographies of people that write themselves as they live. I That was a really interesting concept because you have the book room and you have the lifetimer room in death's abode. And this is not the last time that we will see either of these rooms. Well, in terms of lifetimers, one of the things I really, really enjoyed was like when Mort was off collecting the souls and he goes and meets the monk 
and he's like trying to collect his soul and the monk is like no i've got a season ticket <laughs> and you know because of reincarnation which i think is a really funny way to like do that because you know a lot of books will like deal with reincarnation and life after death in a very kind of like metaphysical way and they'll they'll say like oh there's a bright blinding light and all that kind of thing where it's just like nah there's a guy who shows up on a horse and it's like you know he can be late he's got a sword and this kind of thing <laughs> yeah uh binky as a character i think is interesting too because obviously binky is a horse a real horse which i find very funny that they terry pratchett puts a lot of emphasis on the fact that binky is a real horse not a horse of flames not a ghost horse like a real horse but obviously binky binky almost has more power than anyone else in this in this novel and i don't know if it's because he is death's horse so it's kind of like you know if you do the job of death you sort of become death if you do the job of death's horse you become death's horse but binky you know Binky gets people where they need to go, right? And he he kind of knows where they're supposed to go. So even though, like, Moore isn't telling him we have to go to this place at this time, like, he just has the lifetimers and Binky just goes, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, Binky, well, like, I mean, most things can travel faster than disc light, but Binky can travel faster than disc light. Right. D Binky, is, Binky is fast. He can fly, right? He can carry, like, four people on his back. <laughs> Which happens at one point, yeah. although he's not happy about it. But no, he's he's rather disgruntled about it. Right. I just I love Binky. Binky is a great recurring character. Mm. But with the with the biography room, uh, they raise an interesting question. At least for me, it's like if you were in that room and you had access to all these books, because Death like mentions it to Mort at the end, where he's like Mort never felt any kind of inclination to look at his book you know it never once occurred to him to find out how his life was going how it was going to end that kind of thing how many pages are um, left right yeah yeah he, it never once possessed him like he looks at um albert's book and they find out that he was planning to like knock the ladder out from underneath them while they were on it but it sort of posed an interesting like thought experiment if you were in this infinite kind of room with a book of everyone's lives and you knew yours was there would you go and look for it would you read it if it had how your life was going to end in it and whatever how many pages were left would you would you read it me personally no i would not read it because i think i think we're actually given the answer to why you shouldn't read it which is actually albert the idea that he knew how much time he had left and so he was willing to do anything to stop his demise but i guess we also get the opposite because we get the witch who death goes to collect who knows exactly when she's going to die and she just uses that last day to get her life in order so i don't know arguments on both sides of this mm, but as well like i don't know whether i would or not i feel like like i'm a bit nosy but also i don't care enough so i feel like if i was placed in a room with infinite books of infinite lives with infinite time i would read them all because i need something to do well yeah so at some stage i'd get to my life and at that point you just have to finish the list right like you can't just leave one book unread yeah like i'd probably like if i came across it i'd sit it down on the floor and be like okay that's the last book and then i'd you know i 
I feel like I wouldn't have the self-control in that situation not to read my own book. You have to finish the list. Yeah. A lot of people would, would I, I think, would say, oh, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't want to find out how I die and this kind of thing. And I feel like that's a lot of that answer. If you If you took a survey of like hundreds of people across history, the answer of, oh, I wouldn't want to find out how I died if I were given the chance is only an answer that is shared by people from like the 1970s onwards, like 1970s at the earliest. And I think that's because of pop culture and stories they've told about people who have found out how they died and things have happened. And like, obviously, you've got things like Faust uh, or Dr. Faustus, where he uh you know like he makes a deal with the devil and he's given a certain amount of time and the ending is quite literally like a clock counting down but like you know if you if you said to like a king in the 15th century being like you want to know how you die and he's like yeah sure i feel like only modern people would would try and say they wouldn't find out i guess that's fair and i i guess if you did know and you weren't if you weren't like Albert or Dr. Faust, if you were more like the witch, for, I'm trying to remember her name. I think it's like, I, I don't know. They never come back to this character. She's just an example. But like, if you were more like the witch, I guess it would help. It would be kind of freeing somehow. Like this idea that if you know when you're going to die and you know that you can't resist it, you can't change anything about it, then why would you work at a boring desk job? You know what I mean? Like, like, why would you participate in capitalism? Or, you know what I mean? Like, you would, you would be like, no, like, this is the time I have left. Like, I, I'm not, I'm going to go live my life the way, do what I want to do. That could be a very freeing thing for some people. Yeah, like, if I knew the world was going to end, like, soon. I don't know whether I'd tell other people. I also don't know whether people would listen to me. But I'd be like, I'm going to get my shit in order. I'm going to, like, live in a field i'm gonna like you know live my best life because it does not matter right exactly and i don't want to be i don't want to be too nihilistic when i say it doesn't matter but like in this situation of a room full of infinite books in a space which exists outside of time and space it doesn't yeah i think that's part of the way that this the mechanics of this place work right isabel says what passes here isn't really time right it's just Stuff happens, but it's not, it doesn't have like consequences. It's not, it's not causal in the same way that time is, which I find to be fascinating again. Yeah. So what did you think about the twist with Albert, who is actually Alberto Malik, the founder of the I, Unseen University? I feel like maybe the twist would have landed more if I had like more investment in the unseen academy because like you know when he goes back to the real world like rincewind is there so you've got the you know you've got the crossover with rincewind's books where he calls him like rince thing um <laughs> yeah i was wondering if you'd noticed that the the easter egg for rincewind yeah uh Rin like rincewind's there and he has to like settle a bar tab which has been slowly accruing interest over however many years it's been since he stepped outside of time. I like, I, I think I enjoyed him more when he was just kind of like the kindly old man stereotype. 
again, I think maybe it's just because I don't have as much, I'm not as well versed in the Unseen Academy. I don't know whether the legend of Alberto Malik plays into those books a bit more, but it certainly seems like, because, you know, there's a statue of him. Right, which all the students have defaced at one time or another. So they think that he's come yeah. back as like some sort of revenge for like all the times that they defaced the statue. Yeah. But it's like sometimes sometimes it's good to deface a statue or fuck with it, right? Cuz at least in Trinity there's a, a a statue of one of our previous provosts. His name was uh George Salmon. He was like the provost from it, it was around the turn of the um 20th century. I don't remember the exact dates. But he was like provost for 10 years or whatever. He he was very sexist, and it's a famous quote of his that's like, over my dead body will women go to this college. And so, of course, we built a statue of him for of course. some fucking reason. Yeah. Right. So there's a statue of him in front square sitting on a chair, and now it's tradition whenever any women graduate, they take a photo and kind of like, you know, flip off his statue or whatever. Yeah, that's like, a great tradition. You, George. Yeah, people will put like, you know, traffic cones on his head things like that it was really funny as well because this year our we we elected a provost the leader of the students union and the sort of like union at the student accommodation and they were all women and the official like social media post celebrating it was like we hope george salmon is rolling in his grave is what it said (laughs) nice rolling in his grave well i i mean i feel like this would kind of be like if he came back in the place where his statue was because even the the wi- other wizards are like like the whole point is that albert has been gone for 2000 years and so he comes back and of course he's like we're going to go back to the way things used to be and none of the wizards want that like they all just want they all just want him to leave which i think is hilarious so it's kind of it is kind of similar in some ways yeah where it's like we got to do, you know, he's like, we got to do this ritual to summon death. And it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Uh, we, we, or we don't I, I, like anyone who's read Neil Gaiman's. Yeah. Anyone who's read Neil Gaiman's Sandman as well knows um, how difficult, just how difficult it is to do a ritual to summon and trap death. Yeah. Very difficult. You might get the wrong person. In fact, that almost happens in Mort because when he does the ritual to summon death, Mort is almost the person who gets trapped. Really, it's just Isabel who saves him. Yeah. Right? By punching him. Classic. Classic. You gotta punch people to save them sometimes. I was just gonna say, like, in My Hero Academia, Deku is plunging to his death, and Ararika just reaches out and slaps him across the face to use her powers. But yeah, percussive maintenance sometimes does work. Percussive maintenance. I really enjoy that. Speaking of percussive maintenance, <laughs> what do you think about the romance in this novel? I'm going to be honest with you. I didn't care for it. I didn't care for it in the sense that, like, I don't care for an awful lot of romance in fiction. I, uh, well, I mean, like, love stories. I don't mean, like, romance fiction, as in with a capital R. I just, like, it does not appeal to me. I don't feel it's genuine. Like, I don't know, like, I don't... There's very few pieces of media where it's like, I'm engaged in this romantic relationship and I believe it's real. And one of the few ones, you know, it's like Chidi and Eleanor in The Good Place, where it's like, 
that's kind of believable. I don't know. Like, it's not that I'm aromantic and, you know, don't, like, can't engage with it. It's just, I don't know, it feels false. And also, like, a lot of the time they're like, let's stop the action and, and do a kiss, uh, a la Pirates of the Caribbean, where they're trying to battle on Davy Jones's ship and they get married. But it was the least, in, the, the, the romance quadrangle was the least interesting part of Mort for me. Yeah, I don't really feel like there's enough development of the Isabel and Mort relationship for their eventual romance at the end of the novel to make sense. Like, there's this really weird fake out because he's really pining after Kelly for most of the book. There's a wedding at the end, and we think it's going to be Kelly and Mort, but it turns out to be Mort and Isabel's wedding. Like, Mort and Isabel are now together, and they're now a duke and duchess, and it just doesn't... It, it, yeah, like you said, it doesn't really ring believable in that way. Even though, as we will see, their romance is actually really important to a character in later books. Yeah, and it's also really weird the way they wrap it up, because it's literally like at the wedding, and we don't know for a while who's marrying who, and um, Death even is like, I thought you'd marry Kelly. And it's like, no, no, we can't just like go in and marry a princess straight away. Where it's like, you know, that's a fun little cheeky bit at the end, but at the same time, it kind of goes, well, what's the point of the will-they-won't-they they romance quadrangle if you're just going to be like, well, he couldn't have married her anyway for because reasons. All right, so we see really two different locations, well, three different locations in this book. We see the Ramtops, where Mort is from, Pseudopolis, which is where Kelly is, and of course, Ankh-Morpork. What do you think of the world building in this novel, Nigel? I I really like the world building in it. Like, I mean, the Ram Tops feels like we were discussing earlier, like kind of every, like, you know, it's the Shire archetype where this has to be some sort of unassuming place in the countryside where the hero needs to rise up from because greatness from small beginnings, that kind of thing. So I was like, you know, I wasn't too, like, push about like I, you know i was like this is exactly what i would expect from a place where the hero of this story is coming from at least how it's presented in more feel feel free to like disagree with me on this i, I don't disagree please continue but it's like this is my impression of the ram tops in more i thought ankh Morpork was really good that was probably like my favorite location outside of death's house yeah well like i mean as well I, we haven't really touched on it as much like the footnotes. I have a gag about the footnotes for the end of the podcast, but yeah, let's talk about the footnotes because footnotes are a huge part of Terry Pratchett's humor slash narrative voice. I thought the footnotes were pretty funny and like they do a good bit of the world building in Mort. I'm thinking particularly of like when they're talking about the court and the vizier at one stage where it's like, you know, like he has a footnote and in that, footnote you've got another footnote which it's like you know the only thing i've seen that happen in his house of leaves which is a really bizarre <laughs> comparison to draw between terry pratchett and house of leaves because i think they they exist on like opposite ends of the literary enjoyment spectrum where it's like both of them are cram packed with things for you to unpack and references and stuff but terry pratchett is a very like accessible thing you can go in and 
read it really quickly if you want and you know like it, it it's light reading whereas house of leaves is arcane it's abstruse yeah, this actually reminds me a lot of the footnotes. I, I obviously read this much later than I read Terry Pratchett, but it, I, it kind of reminds me too of the footnotes from Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, the book by Susanna Clark. She also relies, it, it, again, it's a very different genre. She's doing something that's completely different from what Terry Pratchett is doing, but she relies a lot on sort of that, those footnotes and she has very... She has very intense footnotes. Like there, some foot of the footnotes are almost longer than the actual page that they're yeah. footnoting. Like I haven't read Jonathan Strange and Mister Gnarl yet, but it is something. It is a piece of media that I intend on consuming, unlike Star Wars. <laughs> but I'm like the one with the the court and the vizier, where it's like, like it fills out the world building in in cases where like the story doesn't have time. But Terry Pratchett's like. You know, you want to know some fun facts about the Sun Emperor? And it's like, you know, the stone garden of universal peace and simplicity laid out to the orders of the old old emperor, one sun mirror. And this is the point where the footnote in the footnote begins. So you go to that footnote and it's like, whose other claim to fame was his habit of cutting off his enemies' lips and legs and then promising them their freedom if they could run through the city playing a trumpet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> which... Yeah, and the contrast between those two footnotes works yeah, really well. Yeah, the top one is like, "Oh, look at how great one sun mirror is," and then it's like, "Oh, he was kind of he was kind of a bastard." Right, exactly. Like on the one hand, it's peace and harmony, and then it's cutting it's off people's very, lips. It's a very like yeah. Vlad the Impaler type punishment. Yeah, I mean, I believe that the footnotes they they do a lot of world building, but there's also a lot of jokes in the footnotes as well. Because the other thing we haven't really talked about is that part of Terry Pratchett's narrative voice is that even though he's building a fantasy world that is completely removed from our real world, he makes a lot of real world references. Like he talks about at one point, he talks about how more hears this like scritching sound of like the books writing themselves. And he compares it to sitting next to someone who's listening to music on a Walkman. A Walkman is not, first of all, that's a very 80s thing to say. But second of all, it, a Walkman is not part of the Discworld. Like, you're not going to find characters with Walkmans on this, in the Discworld. You're just not. Like, they're not running around listening to music in this way. But the narrator seems to be omniscient to the point where they can make these references from our world to in order to help you understand what's happening in the fantasy world. Yeah, like, I mean, don't they say at one stage that Discworld is just like a parallel world to ours, right? Yeah, there's a lot of comparisons being made. Yeah, so in that way, it nearly feels like Terry Pratchett is kind of like the Rod Serling of this world where, you know, like, you know, <laughs> we've entered the Twilight Zone where, um, oh, what's... What's the quote that they say at the end or at the start of every episode of Twilight Zone? You're traveling through another dimension, a dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind, a journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's a signpost up ahead. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. Things like that, where it's like that applies equally well to the Discworld as it does the Twilight Zone, you know? Yeah, I feel like a lot of these characters are very recognizable, but they're in situations that are completely unrecognizable. So yeah, it does have that Twilight Zone 
feel to it in yeah, that way. Yeah, I guess it's like another analog to how the disc world functions. Like you, you, you likened it to Star Trek, which I haven't seen either. So I'll take your word for that. But it's like one that I would draw would be it's like you know an anthology show. Or like when you know one of those old like tales from the crypt, tales from the dark side, kind of like EC comics things, where uh, or like creep show, right? The original one, where it's like each book would be an episode where it's like they all kind of have the same through line, and some of the characters are the same, but they're all doing their own little things. Yeah, it is kind of episodic in that way. Which is another reason that I will just say you can read these books in any order. Like you, they they are not. For the most part, uh, I was wrong about one thing in hyperfixations. I did say there were no cliffhangers. That's not technically true because Color of Magic technically, Color of Magic and Light Fantastic really should be read together, which we will read them because there is sort of a cliffhanger at the end of Color of Magic. But as far as the rest of them go, you can really read them in any order because they work almost like a television show where they're reintroducing you to the characters and sort of the world at the beginning of each, except for the fact that you will probably be a little spoiled, just as far as character through lines, if you read them out of order. So that's something to think about, I guess. Yeah, that makes sense. But, like, I don't know. I I haven't reread any Discworld. I haven't reread any of the ones. So this, so this is, like, basically we're going to call this my first Discworld experience because I am now a person with discerning tastes still omnivorous <laughs> but like i like in in what content i consume but like you know i have some measure of taste where like you know what things are good and what things are bad but it's like a gentle person with a refined mm, taste but it's like i don't know i find that really annoying when books do that sometimes where it's like it's kind of one of the few things that annoy me about like um, a series of unfortunate events, which is one of my favorite series of all time. But they kind of do spend a lot of time reintroducing you to things you already know. And where it's like, it doesn't make sense in that series. Where it's like, it's a series of 13 books. You're going to like follow them sequentially because there's a plot. Whereas like Jack Reacher books can get away with it because like, who really cares about the overarching plot of Jack Reacher? Right. I well, I wouldn't say there's an overall arching plot as much as there are character developments that happen. So like death as a character, things happen to him that affect his character late in later books. You could read those books without knowing those things, but the character that you're reading about is essentially a later version of the character. Yeah, yeah, no, no. What I was saying was just, it does not make sense in a book which is like strictly, you need to read these books in this order, like a series of unfortunate right. events. It's like, right. I know, I just read that book. Like when you're. <laughs> I just read yeah, this. Like when Why you're are binging you Netflix me? and it gives you the previously on, it's like, yes, I've been watching this for three hours. Uh, what if there was a skip that option for books? Like on Netflix, you just hit the like skip the intro and it takes you straight to the episode. What if they had that, but for like books, like series of unfortunate events, like skip the I, intro? I don't know whether I do it because I enjoy reading all of the things. So I'd reread it. And also like in the case of a series of unfortunate events, Lemony Snicket's voice is very distinctive. So even when he's telling you things you already know, at least it's like, injected with some degree of like awareness it's kind of the it's the first option i thought or like 
example I thought of because it's a clear example and I can also see a copy of the reptile room on the floor of my shed. So that's why I seized upon it. But yeah, I don't know. Our, come to listen to Nanny Og's book club where our references are based on what Nigel can see on the floor of their shed. Yeah. Well, like, I mean, it's only on, on the floor of my shed because I have not put it onto um, a table or some <laughs> such other receptacle. There's there's a lot of tables in my shed. There's uh, three tables and a desk and a set of bookshelves. Uh, yeah. I have a I have a confession to make. I have never read any of the series of unfortunate event books. I saw well, the movie. Guess what? We're gonna do another podcast. <laughs> How many of those are there? Like there's thirteen. Thirteen. And they're wow. they're only like again three hundred pages at the maximum. So like hyperfix your episode of hyperfixations was a foot in the door for Nanny Ogg's book club. And now this episode, this part of um, this episode will be a foot in the door for <laughs> our series of Unfortunate Events podcasts. It's a podcast nesting doll. <laughs> yes. That's, that's what this is. A series of Unfortunate Events contains so many like literary illusions. Actually, to like swing this by the horns back to Pratchett, it's so chock full of like references to things in a series of Unfortunate Events that you need to like be clued into to get them but it doesn't spoil your understanding of the text where it's like there's a character in it in it called esme squalor and like that's um a reference to like a a, like not well known jd salinger book because like if i said to you name a jd salinger book you would say catcher in the rye yeah like you would not say to esme with love and squalor no, no, I would not. Mainly because I didn't exactly. like Catcher in the Rye, so I never read anymore. I didn't like. I didn't particularly like Catcher in the Rye either. I like. I like the bits where it talked about ducks. I did like that. Um, <laughs> but yes. Uh, so I, I guess. I guess series of unfortunate events is kind of like the same mold of like chock full of references. Although in this case, it's mainly like literary and philosophical. But it also has a really strong authorial voice. Yeah, Pratchett's more egalitarian, I guess, in their pop culture references, because it's very, like, you get movies, books, television shows, realistic events, right? Like, he mentions several things in here that actually happened, you know, like actual figures that he's sort of parodying off of. He's very... He's very well versed in pop culture, and you can kind of tell from these books. Yeah, you get the sense that, like, this is a person who's traveled a lot, or at least seen a lot of things. Right, yeah, that is definitely part of the narrative, the omniscient narrative voice of this, which the narrator is basically their own character writing these books, which I think is very, I always love that when the narrator has, like, a distinct voice. Yeah. Where you've you've got to, like, parse through what's, I don't know, like, the textual voice and what's the authorial voice. That's a very hard word for me to say. Authorial. Uh, Authorial. Yeah. Yeah, authorial, because I I was listening to an episode of Off Menu where, um, I can't remember what word it was, but it was very hard for James Acaster to say because of his accent. But yeah, th- th- that word's because like my my mouth is like 
put an or sound there, like Arthurian, and that's. But I have to be like, no, it's Arthurial. 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 Mm. Now, now I now it sounds strange to me because I've said it so many times. <laughs> it's like when you say a word and it's you actually think about it and it sounds strange because you've never actually thought about it as a word before. Arthurial. Yes. yes. All right. So I, I think this is a good place to move towards the end of the episode. So I would like to, to do a little roundup here at the end of our episodes for important Discworld, important Discworld facts for the novel. I'll call it something snazzier when I think of it. But I would like to, for every novel we do, I want uh, to talk about the best death sighting, which is a little redundant for this book because this book is part of the death series. Um, his, the first sighting of death happens on the very first page, so that's not particularly surprising. The first footnote, it's a late one for Terry Pratchett. It occurs, at least in my version of the novel, on page 99. So it took almost 100 pages for the first footnote to show up, although they start coming hard and fast after that. But I personally, my favorite footnote, best footnote for me, happens on page 137, which is the footnote about how no matter what, it's part of the cosmic design of the universe that no matter what is in your, your larder or your pantry during the day, if you go there at night, there's always just a half jar of elderly mayonnaise, a piece of very old cheese, and a tomato with white mold growing on it. That was my, personally, that was my favorite footnote. Did you have a favorite footnote? Nigel? Uh I did. I'm trying to I'm trying to find it now. Uh I should have told you we to... were doing this before we recorded. Surprise! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Here it, it is. Quiz. It's on page two hundred and seventy six of my novel where of my my novel. No, my version of the novel. Where it's like in the Great Hall of the Unseen University, everything happened at once. Footnote. This is not precisely true. It is generally agreed by philosophers that the shortest time in which everything can happen is 1,000 billion years. And I don't know why I really like that. It just, it stuck with me a lot more. And like, I really appreciate the footnote about things traveling faster than disc light and the one about Emperor One Sun Mirror. But uh, yeah. like, I don't know. The one uh, 1,000 billion years one just sort of clinches it for me. That one's a pretty good one. I mean, all the footnotes are good. The, those are just two standout ones, for sure. And then, what's the thing that made you laugh out loud? I think, I think like, I'm going to have to go with a very early one, which is, like, just because it kind of came out of nowhere, where it's, like, death, it's between death and Mort, and they're at, you know, they go to um, Ankh-Morpork, Pork, where it's, like, it's beautiful, said Mort softly. What is it? The sun is under the disc, said Death. Is it like this every night? Every night, said Death. Nature's like that. Doesn't anyone know? Me, you, the gods. Good, is it? Gosh! Death leaned over the saddle and looked down at the kingdoms of the world. I don't know about you, he said, but I could murder a curry. <laughs> That is a good one. That is classic death right there. So you laughed out loud. It, was it at work since it was early? Yes. I have ah, a problem with this because I'm constantly consuming media at work. On my lunch break, I read. And while I'm on the floor, I constantly have an ear, like a, an earphone in listening to podcasts. So it's like, you know, eight hours of podcasts a day. Um, <laughs> and like, you know, 
I just have to like try and not laugh out loud because I look more demented than I do normally. <laughs> my uh, my father has hearing aids that he uses for uh, for a much simpler purpose as you, and he said that sometimes he actually holds his phone up even though he doesn't need it, so people will think that he's talking to someone instead of just talking to himself because yeah. no one can see his hearing aids. <laughs> but. Yeah, so for me, the thing that made me laugh out loud, which really disturbed my partner because I was just reading as as they were falling asleep and and it definitely like woke them up a little bit, was the it's in my version it's on page 106 and I will try to do my best my best death voice. <clears throat> it won't be as good as yours, but it's it, it's a it's a transition where they're talking where Kelly's talking to Cutwell and then it transitions to a, a scene with death. And so it's, oh, yes. Kelly says, you're going to remind everyone I'm alive. It's very simple. There's three square meals a day and your laundry done. Step lively, man. Royal, you're a wizard. I think there's something you ought to know, said the princess. There is, said death. That was a cinematic trick adapted for print. Death wasn't actually talking to the princess. He was actually in his study talking to Mort. But it was quite effective, wasn't it? It's probably called a fast dissolve or a cross-cut zoom or something. An industry where a senior technician is called a best boy might call that anything. I laughed so hard. I had forgotten that joke and found it for the first time. And obviously this is a good example of that narrative voice we were talking about. But the idea of using like a smash cut in a novel, just it makes me laugh so hard and then calling your attention to it. And then the part that actually made me giggle was the part where the senior technician is called the best boy. Because That's so funny. That, I like yeah. watching the credits of movies to find out who's the best boy. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's like, who is the best boy for Fast and Furious 8? And it's like, I don't want to engage with um, the Fast and Furious franchise as someone who values sanity. But at the same time, I, w I need to know who the best boy was. But that right. kind of who's transition happens again later on where the hourglasses are falling off of the um shelves uh, while mort fights death and it's like it's it's kind of hilarious because it's like they happen to be in like very specific positions to like what's happening to their hourglasses which is funny like one falls off of the thing and it's caught and so the person in real life falls off of a cliff and then is caught by a tree and it's like you know how convenient is it like did they spit like you know it's a very cinematic thing where it's like oh yeah. plot convenience right but yeah it does have a cinematic quality to it in in portions uh which we will continue to see as we read along and then lastly what's the one thing that made you think like that kind of puts you off into a philosophical thought i've mentioned both of them already but death in the kitchen asking um what is this feeling and being told it's happiness. And then that's probably my second, like number two, number one is no one is pardoned for living. Yeah. I also mentioned mine as well. The, there is no justice. There's just me, which I just think is such an interesting line and way of characterizing that character while also making you think about death in general as a concept. <laughs> yeah. He, He's the supreme arbiter. Okay, so that's that's Mort. Do you have anything else you want to add 
to before we we close the book as it were on Mort at least for now I would I would like perhaps maybe to uh, round out the episode by reading if I can find it where Mort reads his own book Yes please You can say your thing and then I'll I'll try and find the specific Okay, yeah. So uh, I was going to ask you where people could find you online and on their headphones. People can find me on Twitter at Spicy Nigel, where I sometimes tweet about the Fast and Furious franchise or the Boss Baby franchise or any number of franchises, really, people. I can be found on TikTok, where I make TikToks about astrology. I've made one. I can also be found most recently on AO3. Uh, under Spicy Nigel, where I've started posting fanfic about a podcast I listen to. So that's that. As for my podcasts, you can find Archive Admirers on Twitter at Admirers Archive or on Tumblr at Archive Admirers at Hyperfixations at Hyperfixations P on Twitter or at Hyperfixations Pod on Instagram. Please visit all of those places to find. Nigel online and please leave some leave some comments on their social media please recognize them it is it is clearly very important uh, nice comments please yeah nice comments only only nice recognitions yes Tessa where can people find you you can find me on Twitter and Instagram and Letterboxd at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. You can also find me on my other podcast, Monkey Off My Backlog. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Monkey Backlog. You can find Nanny Ogg's Book Club on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club and on Instagram at Nanny Ogg's Book Club. You can also email us at nannyogsbookclub at gmail.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And now it's time for a reading by Nigel. There was another thing, said Death. He reached under his robe again and pulled out an oblong shape inexpertly wrapped and tied with string. It's for you, he said, personally. You never showed any interest in it before. Did you think it didn't exist? Morv unwrapped the packet and realized he was holding a small leather-bound book. The spine was blocked in shiny gold leaf, the one word, Mort. He leaped backwards through the unfilled pages until he found the little trail of ink winding patiently down the page and read, Mort shut the book with a little snap that sounded in the silence like the crack of creation and smiled uneasily. There's a lot of pages still to fill, he said. How much sand have I got left? Only Isabel said that since you turned the glass over, that means I shall die when I'm... You have sufficient, said Death coldly. Mathematics isn't all it's cracked up to be. How do you feel about being invited to christenings? I think not. I wasn't cut out to be a father, and certainly not a granddad. I haven't got the right kind of knees. He put down his wine glass and nodded at Mort. My regards to your good lady, he said. And now I really must be off. Are you sure? You're welcome to stay. It's nice of you to say so, but duty calls. He extended a bony hand. You know how it is. Mort gripped the hand and shook it, ignoring the chill. Look, he said, if ever you want a few days off, you know, if, if you'd like a holiday. Many thanks for the offer, said Death graciously. I shall think about it most seriously. And now, goodbye, said Mort, and was surprised to find a lump in his throat. 
It's such an unpleasant word, isn't it? Quite so. Death grinned because, as has so often been remarked, he didn't have much option. But possibly he meant it this time. I prefer au revoir, he said. The end.